and welcome to Season 6 of A Mighty Blaze Podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Author Edwin Hill is perhaps best known and loved for his popular mystery series, starring the tiny and curmudgeonly Hester Thursby. Hester is back in his latest novel, but only in a supporting role. This time around, Edwin's fans can travel down a brand new road in The Secrets We Share, a twisty novel of suspense that explores dark family secrets and a community in turmoil. I read it shortly after it came out, and I can tell you, this one really kept me guessing. Edwin visited A Mighty Blaze to chat with fellow novelist and Mighty Blaze co-founder Jenna Blum about the pros and cons of writing a series versus writing a standalone, the challenges of getting into the head of a killer, and why you really need to pay attention to each and every object that's mentioned in his first chapter. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the Blaze torch to Jenna and her wonderfully mysterious guest, Edwin Hill. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm still here with Edwin Hill, even though Facebook has tried to kill us today. It would not be April Fool's Day without some hobgoblins, and so we've been dealing with this all day at Blaze, but we are happy to still be here with Edwin. He did not just get up and leave. In fact, now we're having drinks. So cheers, my friend. Cheers. I legit am taking a big gulp of that gin and tonic because we all need that. I'm already feeling part part one is already hitting my head. So God knows what we're gonna go. Nosy questions. And I forgot to tell you this, but my first novel, Those Who Save Us, came out on April Fool's Day. So I always feel it's a very auspicious day to talk about literature. So today we are going to be talking about the secrets we share. Again, this is the arc. Um, the beautiful arc of Edwin's latest thriller, um, and he has the actual hard copy. And we're going to talk about why the covers changed from copy to copy. Uh, but first, Edwin, would you please introduce us to your standalone thriller, which is a, a difference from what you usually write, which is the Heather uh, Hester, sorry, Hester Thursby series. That's very hard to say, by the way. You should have a heroine with fewer S's for the gin drinkers. I find S is hard and TH is hard. So I don't know why I found, I chose that name. <laughs> I'm going to drink what you talk to us about the secrets we share. How about that? Uh, yeah. So thanks. Thanks everyone for having me today. It's really great to be here. Jenna and I uh, have known each other for a little while now and uh, we're good buds, but we haven't seen each other for a while because she's been traveling the world. So I'm super excited to be on the uh, call with you today. Um, so this is my first uh, standalone thriller. I've written a series, as Jen, Jenna mentioned. Um, and this uh, book is about a, it starts with a, um, it's, it, it's about two sisters. So it's about two sisters who are very different, but very close to each other. Natalie Cavanaugh is a police detective. She works for the Boston police. Uh, she's very uptight. She's very straight-laced. She's very by the books. Um, and uh, her sister, Glenn, like Glenn Close, um, is uh, very different. She's uh, very uh, um, uh, 
Uh, she's very successful. She has bright, bright orange hair that she um, that stands out wherever she goes. She loves to be at the center of attention, and she strives to be the center of attention. The two of them have a secret from their childhood, something that happened to them when they were kids. It happens in the first chapter, so I can give it away. Uh, their their father. They find their father uh, dead in the in the woods behind their house. And they the the central premise of the story is that they both believe they know what happened. Um, and they carry that belief with them well into their adult adulthood. Um, and that belief sort of impacts how they how they interact with each other, how they interact with the world um, and and their development as adults. Um, the story really takes off when a young girl named Mavis um, is dared by a fellow student to go into an abandoned factory uh, in a neighborhood of Boston, for folks who aren't from Boston, the neighborhood is called West Roxbury. Um, and uh, Mavis has dared to go into this factory where she finds a dead body, shockingly enough, because this is a murder mystery. And um, Natalie, who's a detective, is brought in to investigate that murder. As she continues to investigate, though, she starts seeing parallels between what's happened uh, in the present day story and what happened in her in the past uh, when, when she found her father dead. And she starts thinking that maybe there is a deeper connection between these two crimes. That is such an elegant explanation of this really complex and really twisty, turny Look, one of the things that I love about reading this book is that I, True Confessions, know Edwin not just from running our dogs together through the woods. If you look closely, you can see the top of his dog's head. Edith Ann is right behind him. She's a beautiful yellow lab. Um, yeah, she's, yeah, maybe she'll pop up again. She showed us her butt before we, before Facebook booted us off before. Um, and I know Edwin from my novel workshop that I was teaching at Grub Street Writers. And so the work of his that I had read before the Hester Thursby series and before Secret to Share was literary fiction. And he is just this luscious, like luscious writer um, and so smart and so funny. And I'm fascinated by the two Edwins. Like there is that <laughs> thing who writes the literary thriller, which also has a great plot engine as um, thriller authors often have, even when they cross over. And then the, the lit fiction, Edwin, so my question is, do you feel like, I have lots of questions about this, but do you feel like you switch between channels in your brain um, when you write the quote literary fiction that is not a strict thriller, and then when you go to the thriller world? Like, is there like a little glitch? Mm. No, not really. I mean, I would say this, that I, there are two things that I really uh, focus in on. You know, there are so many aspects of the craft of fiction, but the two that I really focus in on um, like most of the time, are um, character development um, and plot and plot and structure. So I guess those are, are three different things. So um, I really love. I, I always start with my characters. I do a, a really frustrating exercise when I'm starting a new novel, where I write the whole thing out, not really knowing where it's going to go. Um, and the that exercise, I just figured this out this week. I've been. Uh, I had a, the book came out this week, so I've been yammering a lot, of course, and and, and yammering helps you sort of think through what you're doing. Um, so I, I go through this exercise where I try and figure out where the book is going, and I really just follow the characters where they go, um, and I figure out who those characters are and what their voices are. Uh, I'm doing that with the novel I'm working on currently right now, and I'm in my frustrating phase. Um, and I do that with any writing that I that I do, and that following those characters really gets me to the path for for, for where the story 
uh, is going to go. And then ultimately, uh, you have to plot out the thing, and you have to make sure that you you have to make sure that you're hitting your beats, and that you've got some you have you have some exciting things that are in there, and you have to make sure that the pace of the novel is 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 spot on, so that you know you're you're engaging your readers for the entire you know 300 or so pages that that you're you're with them, and that's where the plotting really comes in. But without those characters, I really feel like uh, for me, I mean that th th that's just my process. For me, without those characters being fully realized, I, I'm not going to have I'm not going to have any novel without those fully those characters being fully realized. So true, and. Now that you've given us this beautifully erudite answer, I'm going to unpack it all the more because I'm still really curious about this. So when you say you write out the whole novel, do you mean that you write like a I'm writing by hand because that's how I always write my synopses. But do you write like a three page just like this is what this book is about, blah, 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 like Hemingway, you know, this is a novel about Paris. It will be romantic because Paris in the spring is romantic. Or do you mean you actually just write it like a pantser and then go back and infuse structure? Nope, I write it like a pantser, so I try to write 2,000 words a day. I don't always succeed at that, but I try to write 2,000 words a day. They tend to be uh, pretty bad. Um, and I, as the, the story will change as I'm writing it. So, for example, this novel I'm working on right now is, is told from, it's told in six parts. And each part is told by a, a different point of view character. And this, this, the parts of the novel are recursive. So you'll, you'll, one character will tell a part of the story and then the next character will take up the story and we sort of go back in time and we go over the same material a little bit. I keep comparing it a little bit to that uh, that show, the, the Affair, which I really like, where you look at the same story from different points of view. Um, so um, what I'm doing, what I do with all my novels is I just keep writing and as the story changes, I don't go back and I revise, I just keep moving forward. So for example, in this novel, I just kind of changed what I drew. Well, for example, this is a good one. So in this novel, I had two couples who live sort of next door to each other, and they both have they both have a kid, um, and the kids are friends. And about maybe about a third of the way through the novel, I decided that one couple actually didn't have a kid. There's only one kid. So I just dropped the kid out of the 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 second kid. I just dropped that kid out of the novel. And I kept going and I kept writing, knowing in my head that when I have to go back to the beginning and revise this thing again, I need to remove poor Caleb from the entire story. And How I have to remove, not only do I have to remove Caleb, but I have to remove parenting from, because this couple who were parents now don't have kids. And so now I have to remove parenting from, the, from, from their lives in the story as well. Right, from their consciousness and from their actions and from all the scenes. You have to go back and sort of Zamboni through those scenes and make sure that everything is swept out. So how do you keep track? Of th this is the thing I always wonder about thriller authors, because I have no thriller brain. When I read thrillers, <laughs> I get to about three quarters of the way through, and then I have started to lose pegs and they're going every direction. And I think, if that's who killed the person, okay, I believe you. And I'm just, you know, reading because by that time I've gotten wedded to the characters and the prose. And I always read in awe and think, how do you keep track of the changes? Do you use Scrivener? Do you write them down in a notebook off to the side? Like, or do you just keep it all in the Edwin brain as you go? No, I mostly keep it in my own brain. Cause I mean, you know, when you write a book, you go through the material so many times that um, you ultimately know it very well. I always know that a novel is getting toward the end when I, this is a stupid little thing, but I know what word to search on 
or phrase to search on to get to the right place in the in the book that I'm working on. And I, it, it's because I've so internalized the prose of the novel at that point that I actually know where, how everything fits together. I will say, I always start like, just like with the example I just gave with the character that I dropped out, I usually start with a lot of plot threads that um, I might not use them all. Um, and I have to remember the ones that are, I, I sort of let the ones uh, surface to the top and then the ones that I don't use, I have to go back and, and cut. So for example, if you read this book, The Secrets We Share, which I'll hold up one more time. Um, when you read the first chapter, there are a series of objects that come up. And every single object in that first chapter, I'm, just, I'm not giving anything away, every single object in that first chapter matters. Um, and if you go back and you read, if you read the novel through and then you read the first chapter again, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, every single thing that was mentioned in that first chapter mattered. But let me tell you, when I wrote that first chapter, like I wrote that first chapter like 5,000 times. When I wrote that first chapter, some of those objects were there and some of those objects were not there. And okay. there were objects that were there that didn't make the final cut because they wound up not mattering. Okay. Um, so, uh, so that's sort of how it, it's just like going through the same material over and over and over again and just like figuring out what to focus in on. Okay, now I'm really scared of you. Like, I knew you were brilliant from being in our class. I just like Edwin didn't speak all the time in the novel workshop because I did, big surprise, but whatever he said was like really incisive. And now I'm all the more scared that you have this machine in your head that can keep track of all of those things. You're like a human Scrivener. Um, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think that's actually true. That, that's your new name, the human Scrivener. Just accept it. It's you. So, but I do right, think, right. you know, by the time you do finish writing a novel, I have the same phenomenon that you have basically memorized the novel, but I have maybe the opposite phenomenon that you do. I cannot sometimes remember <laughs> which um, version is the published version because oh, I gosh, have yes. it so many times. I have maybe 11 versions of a novel by the time it goes out, more like probably 20. So I think, oh, you know, is it the one where this character is dead or alive and it all gets sort of blurred, especially. So I'm, I'm extra impressed that you can keep the plot twists and objects in your head. I think it is just fantastic. And do you work, I'd like to get into all that making of the writer sausage. Do you write by hand? Do you use Scrivener? Which now seems redundant because you are a Scrivener. Um, do you write in Word? Like, how does this work? I just write in. Uh, I write in Word. Sometimes I will. Uh, it depends on the novel. So sometimes I'll write by hand, and and then I'll sometimes I'll give my if I'm really having tr trouble, I'll I'll force myself to do free writes, and I'll do like fifteen or twenty minute free writes, and then I'll take by hand, and then I'll take those. Um, those words that I wrote now that same day, I'll type them into the computer and sort of edit them as I'm going. Um, that's a really helpful exercise with this book. I haven't, because I'm telling this book in six distinct parts. Um, it has been, I wouldn't say it's easier, but it, it is easier to think about a, um, you know, a 12 to 15,000 piece of work. Uh, it's easier to think about 15,000 words than it is to think about 90,000 words. Um, so there has been something uh, relieving about, uh, there, there's been some relief in, in just uh, looking at it in these uh, discrete sections like that. I mean, it's still a mess. I mean, and no one's going to see it the way it is right now. But um, 
it is so that that's been helpful but i every i feel like i've done a different system for every single book that i've done my first book you know your first book you sit with forever um and you know nobody is waiting for your first for your first book so you can you can work on it for years which is exactly what i did um, my second book i had a deadline and i also had a really big job at the time um and so i had to i really had to work on a on an outline for that one and i had to make all of my deadline like my personal deadlines just in order to even have a hope of making the deadline for that book um and then my my third and fourth books i've i've um sort of done, done a mix between outlining and um and uh panting i do think it changes i'm relieved to hear you say that because i do think it changes from from book to book although i still like i'd love to hear you say you still do a free write which i often do when i'm starting a book and also when i get to some trouble spots to work out those knots i will sit down with a pen like with a sharpie and some paper and and chew on that a little bit so we're getting a ton of audience questions there are so many questions about heather thursby Esther. why do i keep saying heather I you're like not the start. only one no don't worry lots of people call her heather all right. Well, it's probably just my my gin and tonic list. We'll just go with that. But <laughs> getting a lot of questions about the series and about the new book and the challenges and the differences and joys of writing both. So I'm I do want to tack to that. But I also want to talk a little bit about your um, writing while you had this big job, which is because we had to restart and I didn't get to read Edwin's bio again. Um, Edwin is the VP and editorial director at Bedford St. Martin's while he was writing his first first book or first couple first of books. First and second, yep. And second, which is such a straddle. So I wanted to ask about um, what was it like to pivot from being within the industry to making that leap to being a full-time writer, which I think is incredibly brave. Like one of our other Blazers did that as well. Mark Cecil did it, um, our thoughtful bro, um, but not working actually at a publisher, like working at a different company. So um, what was that like? To work, to straddle, to straddle the two worlds or to make the big crazy leap? I would just like a, a, I would like a beautifully polished verbal narrative now about straddling the two worlds and then yeah. when you decided to jump and then what that was like to, sure. to, to, to be a writer I, full time, knowing all that you knew from the industry, which is a little scary. I worked in the uh, much less glamorous uh, wing of publishing, of academic publishing, which is basically textbooks. It was a terrific, I, I, I don't mean to make light of it. It was actually a terrific career. It like provided me with all sorts of opportunities and I'm super grateful for it. And uh, Macmillan it is an amazing company. Um, and I loved, loved, loved every minute of the time that I spent doing that. And I love the people that I worked with in that uh, industry. Um, I do feel like you can only do one thing really well. You can't, you can't like burn the candle at both ends forever and, and keep and really feel like you're going to be able to do everything well. Um, but I loved working for Macmillan. It was, um, I, you know, Macmillan is a relatively small company. And so we would cross over with the trade people. You know, I would see them at board parties and stuff like that at board meetings. Um, and they were always very uh, kind and interested in talking to me about um, the publishing world. John Sargent is a good friend of mine. John Sargent ran Macmillan for many, many, many years. Um, and he was always helpful and useful as a uh, as a guide um, as I was trying to navigate the publishing world. So I, I was really, uh, I always felt like that was, I was so grateful for that. Um, and when I decided to take the big leap and leave, I mean, it was totally scary. Of course, I had a 
delightful steady income that I got from that job that I no longer have. You get, you get a steady, delightful income as a writer? What are you not, doing not, um, but again, I do feel like you, 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 you know, you have to make choices in life. And and someone said this, and I wish I could find who to attribute to it. But someone said to me as I was making this decision, if you if you make a bad decision, just make another decision. So what I decided was I really needed to try this for a while. It's been almost, it's actually been almost three years since I left, but I really had to try see if it would work out. I do tons of freelance work. I teach at Emerson College. You know, I managed to cobble something together and have this creative life that I really, uh, really cherish. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate to, to have all of those things put together. But again, to, I wanted the focus of my life to be writing, not um, not going to board meetings. Someone mentioned that not going to board meetings and, 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 and making sure that a company was financially successful. I'm sorry, it was me. I had to put this comment in the chat. I sneakily did that because I was fascinated by the idea of board parties. I'm like, oh, you guys had parties? Like board parties? Is that like, was that? And it, that had to be very glamorous, even if it was, you know, academic publishing. I'm sure that you guys just got like down and dirty all the time doing all the board party things. I, I would love to know um, what, like, was there a moment where you thought, okay, I'm just going to switch from, you know, going to work and going to the board meetings to the full-time writing. Was there a catalyst moment for that? Because it's, again, it's just such a brave decision. Yeah. You know, I was working on my third book. My third book is called Watcher. Um, I finished the first two books, and part of it was that I finished the book two, first two books in complete obscurity. Nobody, nobody, again, nobody is waiting for your first book, and I had actually finished my second book before my first book came out, so that was like really good. Um, and uh, so, w working in obscurity like that was actually helpful. And there was some added attention with um, with having the two books coming out, and um, there was you know, uh, I was finding it harder and harder to balance the two worlds. Um, and again, I just kind of had to get to this point where I was like, I'm either going to lose this dream. I mean, like I had worked really hard to get my first two books published. I'd worked really hard to get my first book published in especially. And um, I wanted to keep going with this. So I could either lose the dream and keep, you know, keep going with Macmillan, which would have been a fine choice, but it wasn't the choice I wanted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we're really glad that you did this and McMillan's losses are gained. So thank you for continuing to write your series in the standalone. And let's talk about that a little bit. So the Hester Thursby, I said it right. I'm so, so proud of myself. Why the decision to write a standalone when you are used to, <laughs> when you're used to working on a series? I have many questions about working on a series and the joys of that challenges, but um, is this like a beautiful palate cleanser? Did you love writing a standalone after working on the series? And why did you do it? Oh, sure. Uh, the series is, uh, working on a series is great. I mean, there, there are really fun things about working on a series. You stick with characters for a long time and you get to see them grow over, you, you get to create character arcs, not just within the novel that you're working on, but over a series of books. So you can sort of plan out over a long period of time. Um, you, it really helps when it comes to character development. There's something there's something really special about seeing a character grow over three or four books, and to be able to think about how you want that character to grow over three or four books. You can have a character make a terrible decision. I mean, Hester, for anyone who hasn't read, Hester is constantly making terrible decisions. She's a very flawed character. Um, 
but she go. can make those she can make those terrible decisions and sort of make up for them later on. You know, if you if you really think through the the plan of the series. I had third. I, I someone said this to me, and I never know who who to attribute it to. But um, someone said to me, when you write a series, write in books of three, um, because you can come up with a character arc for the three uh, books. You can figure out sort of what stories you want to carry out through the three books, and then in that fourth book, you can write a new. You can write a story where you can bring in new. You can bring in new readers. You can almost start the 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 series all over again. Um, a, a lot of readers don't like to start series um, without starting on the first book. Um, so I thought th I just did three books. I did wind up a lot of Hester and her partner Morgan's storylines. Um, and so I thought that was a good time to take a break. The The drawback of writing a, a, a series is exactly what I just said. You stick with the same characters. Um, a Hester Thursby book is exactly what a Hester Thursby book is. They're, they're all sort of the same. Um, and so if you want to do anything different, you kind of have to do it outside of the Hester Thursby world. Um, so so when I came up with this idea, I mean, the, we can talk about the process of coming up with this idea, but I really wanted to try something different. Uh, Hank Philby Ryan, who's also on The Blaze, uh, often says the different, uh, when she wrote her first, um, when she wrote her first uh, standalone book, she was really excited to be able to make anyone good and anyone bad and to be able to sort of uh, work within this world where she wasn't hemmed in by any of the choices. When you write a series, you have to protect your core cast. I mean, nothing can happen to Hester, nothing can happen to Morgan, nothing can certainly happen to Waffles, their uh, Bassett mm -hmm. comics. Um, so, um, you know, and that there, there is some limiting, there, there's, some, there's a little bit limiting to that. So when I wrote this book, I wanted it to be uh, a different style. So it's, um, it's more of a domestic thriller, whereas my other books are a little bit more noir. And um, I wanted it to be, I wanted to surprise the reader all the time. I wanted to put beats into this novel where, where characters you thought were good suddenly turned bad, characters you thought were were bad suddenly turned good, and that um, the reader was constantly trying to guess what was going on. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Do you want to hear how successful authors got their start? The Queries, Quams, and Quirks podcast asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Sounds like something that would be up our alley. Listen on your favorite podcast app or go to sarahnicholas.com for more info. I love that. Yeah, I love that. The sort of flip flopping, and I loved also that Hester has a cameo in this book. Yeah. I was <laughs> so any fans of Hester Thursby, she actually does show up in this book very briefly. She she is there. Yeah, she does, and I love that. I love when authors put um, characters from their previous books into their current book. It makes me feel very smart. Um, Jenna Payone, I think one of our um, our amazing on air hosts, our lit chick host, and also in our novel workshop. Um, I think called that the Easter egg syndrome where she's just like, yep. I find these things and they make me feel so smart. So thank you for enabling us to feel smart. Well, this um, directly speaks to the question that Julie asked us that our producer popped up uh, sort of while you were answering the question, what if anything was different about writing this book than a Hester book? Do you have a, a preference for writing a standalone over a series? Did this give you like, you know, the horse has now left the 
the gate and is like out roaming around in the world. And you're like, I'm never going back to the series. I love it so much out here. No, I mean, I like both. I mean, I, I would liken it to writing a, t a TV series versus writing a, like a standalone movie. Um, it's just a different, it's a different way of telling a story. Um, I mean, with a series, you want to, you want to have every book be contained. Um, and uh, so that readers can discover the book on its own and not feel frustrated by not knowing what happens sort of surrounding it. Um, so that's also something you always have to be mindful of. Um, but I like both and I would, I have a Hester Thursby book um, outlined um, and I would like to return to that. At the end of Watcher, there is this tiny, and, and I not annoying, but tiny cliffhanger um, that sort of uh, is a hint at where, where, where she's going as a character next. And I would like to explore uh, answering that cliffhanger. Excellent. Oh my God. We love cliffhangers here at the blaze. I have to tell you that when I was a little girl, my dad would read me one chapter of a book a night, like an E.B. White yep. book. Usually. And I would say, I just need one more chapter. I just need, I need to know what happens. I need one more chapter. And he'd say, Nope, tomorrow, Jen. And that was how I learned how to write a cliffhanger. You always yep. have to leave people wanting a little bit more, right? Yes, and absolutely. Yeah. So, but I'm sure that um, fans of Hester are very excited to know that she hasn't been tossed over your shoulder or will just appear in cameos that she's still there. And I personally, I know when you were talking about the book with six point of view characters, I was like, wait a minute, that was the book that I've been reading in workshop, which is it's so good, right? So you are a man of many genres, of many stripes, and they're all good. And we're so excited about that. Um, so we do have more audience questions and Paula wants to know so many story questions when you're writing Hester, how do the story questions for the new book compare? What an interesting question. And Paula, I see your dog in your, in your avatar and he's so cute. Thank you. Hi Paula. Um, the story questions are, they are different but just because they are self-contained. Um, I will tell, I mean, Paula, Paula's really great at, for anyone who doesn't know Paula Mounier, she is a terrific writer. Um, her first book is called The Borrowing, a Borrowing of Bones, and it's a terrific novel. Um, look her up and uh, read her terrific books. Um, and she's really, she, she, she's written, I think, I think I have it right, no, I don't have it right. Oh, yes, I do. She's written a terrific book on um, writing a novel called Plot Perfect. Um, and that I use in my MFA, some of my MFA courses. Um, what I would say about story questions in this novel was I, I when I was writing this novel, I started, I, I signed the contract for this novel in March of 2020. And get, where were you in March of 2020? Everyone remembers where they were in yeah. March of 2020. Yeah, yeah, we were all sitting at home being sad. Um, and so I, I uh, oh, yeah, Pam wants to get out. Um, stay here for a sec um so i was working on that novel and i just thought for what I, I i had a number of false starts on this novel but ultimately i decided to myself you know what i want this novel to be really really fun because ev everything is such a bummer right now um and so what i wanted was a novel where you're constantly guessing what was going on you're constantly being surprised by what's going on and so as i was writing this novel one of the fun things that i did and paula helped me with this and uh, another person helped me with this as well. I looked at the um, um, pace of this novel. I wanted the pace to be 
fast and I wanted the whole thing to be exciting. And so um, I had come up with what the midpoint of the novel was going to be. The midpoint is for anyone who doesn't know when you're when you're uh, structuring a novel, the midpoint happens right in the middle. It's the, the exciting thing basically that happens right in dead center of the novel. I looked at the novel and I thought the midpoint what's happening at the midpoint is happening too late in this novel. It's making it boring. And so I took the midpoint and I moved it all the way up so that it was the first quarter of the novel, which is what you call plot point one. Um, and so I compressed the entire first half of the novel into the first quarter of the novel. And it was the best thing that I, it was the best decision that I've made because it, it just, it, 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 made the pace of the novel pick up so, so much. And it was this, it's this, I think, well, I mean, whatever, I'm talking about my own book, but it's a surprise that I'm really proud of um, that happens a quarter of the way through the novel that I think tells the reader that you have to expect crazy things to happen for the next three quarters of this novel. And then I tried to deliver those crazy things. Mm -hmm. Which indeed you did. So, I mean, that takes some serious stones and thank you, Paula. And I know that Mark, who is working with us on this interview, our thoughtful bro is really excited about this because he's such a structure guy. Um, and just to make all of writing that you readers read really boring, a lot of what we talk about in workshop is exactly these decisions. Like when do you make the big thing happen and it, does it happen too soon or does it happen too late? Because we know that if we don't put those in just the right way, you will get bored and fall off the shelf and go watch Netflix. And our job is to keep you pinned in the chair underneath our books. So we have a couple more audience questions, but I have a question I need to ask is a burning question that I have been wanting. I had starred in my roster of questions and it is like, you know, I know you as a lit fiction guy. Now I know you as a thriller guy, but I don't know you as a killer. Um, and yet, it seems to me that you have like lots of death in your books. Actually, you had death in, in your in your literary fiction for class also, and I was totally on board with that. Um, but the the death in Secrets We Share, there's some like deliciously gruesome moments in Secrets We Share. And is this like really who you are, Edwin? You're really a killer. Mm -hmm. I think it's funny. Uh, the thing about writing a, a mystery novel for me, the hardest thing for me about writing a mystery novel is the murder part, because I, it's like how like when you really think about it, like how how desperate do you need to be to actually kill another human being? I mean, you have to be pretty desperate. And so I'm always trying to like work through the motives and like why someone would actually make this this like completely desperate uh, decision. And um, it takes me a while to get there, I have to say. It's what I'm struggling with with this novel I'm working on right now. Um, so uh, I, I'm definitely not a killer. <laughs> I like that question though. Thank you. But I do like, I like, I like, it's funny, this came up earlier in a conversation I was having this week. I like, I look, I think what people like about murder mysteries is that it brings people to the extreme, right? It brings them to the extreme of emotion. It brings them to the extreme of what, ten, what, what tension can be. Um, and so um, when you're pushing a character to make a decision like, actually to take the life of another human being that's a serious serious decision and you can't like, like the stakes can't be higher than that um and it it makes for inherently interesting reading for me okay so i am relieved that i can still go walking in the woods with you with our dogs and not worry that suddenly i will never be seen again and i'll like end up in a ravine in some creative way 
but I'm also like a little bit disappointed by that answer. I think, um, I mean, it's a great answer, but I'm like, oh, Edwin is like secretly really, really grisly and is like looking at people in the supermarket who cut in front of him in line and being like, you're going in a vat of acid. <laughs> no? No, no, not at all. How then, okay, I'm sorry, I know there are audience questions, but how do you make the details so convincing? Because I thought they were very convincing. That's why I'm like, Edwin is a secret killer because all of these, and it's, I guess, you know, it's such a privilege to have writer friends because you know your friends and your friends' voices and you know them even as writers and their writer voices verbally. And then you read their books and it's like being in one of your friend's dreams, I guess. And the voice is a little bit different than you hear in workshop or like when you're walking through the woods. And it's such a cool, calm, collected voice in this book with describing all the grisly details. And that was like really surprising to me. So how do you access that voice and that the calm and then the details themselves. Like, how do you think of those things? Oh, sure. I mean, one of the things, this is, there is like a police procedural part to this book. Um, and I did, uh, there's actually a lot of procedure in this. And so um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to take that sort of removed voice that uh, you would have to have. I mean, like if you worked as a police officer, I mean, I mean I'm just imagining now because I've never done that job, but um, I, I think you would have to have this removed voice when you're looking at it such terrible things happening to people um, on a, a day in and day out. And so I did want to, I did want to, um, I did want to achieve that sort of somewhat removed voice, especially when the police officers are uh, the point of view characters. Um, so, I mean, but again, as far as the crimes go, I had, uh, it took, I had to narrow in on things that I, that I believed were plausible. Um, so there's a motive. I will tell you, there's a motivation for a crime in this that it took me a while. It's hard to talk about this book because there are uh, everything sort of fits together. It's like a little puzzle, and the surprises start really early. And so um, I try not to talk about too many of the surprises. But there's a, a, there's a decision that a character, a key character, makes about his finances. Let's put it that way. And um, I, did, I landed on that actually relatively late. I got that out of the class that we're in because someone suggested this idea to me. And it was what I wanted was a very simple um, concept that any reader could understand. Like I could understand both that he what he did, but I also could understand how he did that and how he like how how the decisions that he made sort of snowballed together to become a much larger decision than he he originally made. Um, and so it, it did take me a while to get to something where uh, where it was both simple to understand and yet it could be complex enough to lead to the rest of the of the crimes that happen in the story. Yeah, a beautiful job with that. And of course, now I'm guessing like who in the class was it? This is my own little mystery. So don't tell me. I'll ask you afterwards. But I think I know. I think I know who it was. And I think it was another blazer. OK, I think we have a couple more audience questions and I don't want to. Oh. Anissa, Anissa is like one of our number one viewers on Blaze. She is like always brings the party. Who has been your most challenging character to write in any of your books and why? Um, thank you, Anissa. Uh, that is a good question. I would say one of the characters, actually, this was kind of fun. So in this book, there's a character named Mavis, who is a 12-year-old child, um, a girl. And um, she... A, I landed on her really late in the writing. This this book this book was a, a puzzle to figure out. And um, after I'd finished a few drafts, 
I was I do this thing called a character audit where I go through the I go through the novel and I just figured out I figure out basically who can stay and who needs to go. And I sort of analyze like I'm like, does someone have two best friends when they could really just have one best friend? That kind of question. Um, mm -hmm. But so when I did the character audit, originally the novel begins with the novel begins with this um, 12 year old going into this abandoned factory and finding a dead body in the in the uh, in in the original draft. It was a boy named Andre who went into that um, factory. And then there were two other kids, Mavis and Astrid. They were sisters and they were just kind of like hanging out over here. And so when I did my character audit, I thought to myself, well, Andre never comes back. And Mavis and uh, Astrid are just sitting over here doing nothing. Um, and so I figured out, we, I really only need one one 12 year old i only need one 12 year old i need that 12 year old to go into the factory and then i need that 12 year old to stick around and become part of the story um and so one two things that were fun about that it tightened up the story it was it was a great decision it tightened up the story but i also um i had i decided to make mavis a point of view character and this was like two months before the book was due to my editor and so i had to write all of these scenes from mavis's point of view i had to write like i think she has maybe um, you know, maybe seven or eight chapters that are from her point of view. And um, so I had to write all of those. And the nice thing is, is that everyone is, not everyone, but a lot of readers are telling me that she's her, my, uh, she is their favorite character. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's nice. To, a, that's nice to hear. Thank you. And B, I'm glad I made that decision. But the funny thing is, I don't know any 12 year olds. And um, I, I like, uh, even, even in my friend group, no one has a, a kid that age. Um, and so I was, sort of like what do I don't know what 12 year olds do I don't I don't know any of them um and so I I went on Facebook one day and I was just like does anyone who has a 12 year old can you just tell me like what do they do like what do they do with their day-to-day -day lives what are, what are they into and like people are so generous and so I got like I mean I posted it and I had my answer within like maybe 10 minutes and what I knew what I found out was that they go on TikTok all the time and they are obsessed with things and that was all I needed to add to Mavis to make her sort of a fully realized character. So she goes on TikTok with her friend Stella and she gets obsessed with things. And so that helped me kind of develop her as a character. But she was, I mean, she was definitely challenging. Not only was she challenging, but I had to develop her really quickly, which was also challenging. Yeah, that is shocking to me because Mavis is a really big part of the story. So I would have thought that she had been baked into the cake from the beginning. And it's amazing now that I think about it, this is how seamless The Secrets We Share is, that not only was I thinking, like I almost was thinking about how does Edwin, my friend, know about killing all these people in this very believable and grisly way, but I wasn't thinking, how is he writing from the mind of a 12-year-old girl in this incredibly believable and grisly way? <laughs> so well done. And I had another question about how do you write from a female point of view and was that difficult? So but I'm going to sort of extrapolate from your other answers that maybe not, not. So well, all of my books are told from multiple points of view. Um, which I like to do. I sort of, I, one of the things I really love about writing thrillers is I like the idea of it being a puzzle and how, so every point of view character has a, a portion of the story that they know and they bring those stories together. And so in the end, I always say the reader is the, is the, is also a point, point of view character. In the end, even in a Hester Thursby novel, in, in the end, the only person who knows the full story, if I've done it well, the only person who knows the full story is the reader. So like even in a Hester Thursby novel, if, if, if you read a Hester Thursby novel at the end, even Hester doesn't know everything that happened. Um, 
because she hasn't because part of the mystery stays with other characters. Um, and so, you know, when you're writing multiple point of views like that, I do think, you know, like you, they all can't be me. Uh, that would be a really boring story if I told five stories from from Edwin Hill's point of view. So, um, you know, I try to I try to make I, I try to mix up who's there and try to uh, go in all different directions with who, who's telling the story. Um, and I do cheat. I do little things that uh, help me cheat and get closer to the characters. For example, I often will have a character who's exactly my age um, so that I don't have to for that one character. I don't have to do any research into like what music they might listen to or anything like that. Um, I'll often have a character who is obsessed with something that I'm obsessed with so that I can bring that to the to the character as well. How restful and how smart and, and that's it. And again, because the reader knows everything that the characters don't know, you make us feel smarter perhaps than we really are. So that is like really thrilling to all of us. Thank you for that. <laughs> but what are you obsessed with now, Evan? Okay, you guys have to stop asking questions. We have really good questions. We have a, first of all, you need to answer that question. Second of all, we have a question from our podcast director, Trisha Blanchett, which I would love to throw up. But what are you obsessed with now? Well, the one thing I'm obsessed with, I'm going on a trip for the first time. I've not left New England since the since March of 2020. And I'm going on a trip. I'm going to Ireland. I'm going to go to the Dingle Peninsula. And uh, my partner, Michael, and I, we like to we like to go on these trips where we walk from one pub to the next. Uh, you know, you like wake up in the morning, you pack your bags, you walk <laughs> for like 20 miles, and then you get to a pub and you you have a really nice night and then you get up and do it the next day. Uh, so we're going to do that in the Dingle Peninsula. So right now I'm obsessed with Ireland and I can't wait to go. And I cannot oh wait to leave. I love New England, but I can't wait to leave you New England for a little bit. No, we do not blame you. You've been very patient. And who is going to take care of Edith Ann, we want to know. And we cannot wait to see your Instagram feed about that. And now the question we have all been waiting for from Trisha, which animal character from your books is your favorite? Hers is Waffles. Oh, well, I will say, uh, so uh, I, I will say I have a lot of, uh, all of my novels have uh, animals in them as, as uh, named animals. Let's put it that way. Um, and Waffles is a Basset Hound mix who uh, lives with Hester and Morgan in the Hester Thursby series. Uh, and Waffles will always have a special place in my heart. Um, in this book, uh, let's see, in, in The Secrets We Share, there are two, there are two animals that have names. Um, that Waffles actually makes an appearance, but I, I chose not to use her name. Um, and the two dogs, are, there's a dog named Rowdy, um, and there's another dog named uh, George. I do love George because George, George is sort of, um, George was a real sad sack. Um, he was uh, found in the, let's see, he was found in The Missing Ones, which is my second book. Uh, and it was like this, it, once in a while when you're writing a scene, you're, you like surprise yourself with something that you decide to do. Um, and so in this, in this scene, Morgan, who is Hester's partner, a longtime partner, he goes to this house and there's this dog who has not been well cared for. Um, and he makes this decision to like give the own, the owner five hundred dollars to take the dog, and it's one of these it's one of these moments that uh, Morgan is a veterinarian, so he he obviously loves animals, but um, 
it's one of these uh, moments where it really helped me understand who he was as a character and actually helped me understand who Hester and Morgan are as a couple. Um, Hester and Morgan are these uh, misanthropes. They claim to be misanthropes. They like claim that they hate people and hate everything. But you'll notice if, as you read the series, they're always welcoming people and, and, and creatures into their, into their lives um, and opening their house to all of, these, all of these creatures. So, and then one other animal that I love is Ian the Iguana. Ian, um, Ian lives with Hester and Morgan as well, and he's just like a six-foot iguana. And Hester, Hester is Hester is is very small, and she's always having to lift this iguana everywhere. She like lift him off the counter and lift him off the refrigerator and stuff like that. So, as one does, I mean, <laughs> that is so great. Well, Evan, thank you so so much for spending so much of your afternoon with us today and telling us about the secret we share and the animals and the. Hester Thursby books. I'm going to hold this up again, even though it's not the correct cover, but please show us the beautiful new cover. Thank you. And I didn't even get a chance to ask about the, the mystery pink cover, but maybe that's our cliffhanger for next time. Um, and I would, yes. And I would love to point out behind you, Edith Ann, um, our favorite animal is like, we so ready to go out now. Like, oh, yeah, she's, she's like, can I leave this room, please? Oh my God. We're so happy to see Edith Ann, and we're happy to see you too, Edwin. So thank you again for spending time with us, and good luck with the rest of your events, and have a terrific time in Ireland. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. It was great to uh, chat with you. It was so great. Thank you, Blazer. Have a good weekend. Lots of good reading. Bye. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, a suspenseful fantasy called Herrick's End, is available now if you want to check it out. We'll see you next time for an episode featuring romance writing phenom Jane Ann Krentz. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.